Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tougher, even if they don't. Today is May the 29th, 2018. This is episode 2227 of the Survival Podcast. It is a Tuesday. Of course, we just had Memorial Day, so we didn't have a Monday show. So I'm going to do a Monday show. On a Tuesday. And the reason I'm going to do that is I do my standalone shows on Tuesday where I pick a subject and we break it down. And, and that's great. And I think some of you, that is your favorite show of the week. And I appreciate that. The other side of it, though, is I have, you know, hundreds of emails that come to me every week. And if I skip a feedback show, some of that stuff that would be really good content just gets lost forever. Uh, it's a time sensitive type of show. And it, it's, I feel like my Monday shows and my Thursday shows are my most obligatory obligatory shows to you guys because they are direct response shows. And I, I guess Friday with the expert counsel being more in the driver's seat of answering those questions, I'd put that there too. In other words, you bring your concerns to me. You bring your questions to me. And I either alleviate those concerns or say, yeah, legitimately, lots of concern. Here's what you can do about it, which also helps alleviate it. Or you ask me how to do things and stuff like that. And I feel like that's my primary responsibility, to empower your life with knowledge. So I decided when I had to make a decision today that I would go ahead and do the feedback show. So we got a bunch on the line today, and it is a really um, diverse agenda. Quite a bit of ag stuff and plants and all, but I mean, overall, this is pretty pretty diverse. Uh, a question on labeling plants and what happens when you don't do it. Uh, I'll tell you what you need to know about the Nipah virus, which of course is creating spam emails and clickbait headlines and all kinds of crap. And it ain't good, but it ain't anything you should probably worry about sitting there in Idaho or Philadelphia or Jacksonville or Dallas, Texas or wherever you're at. If you're not in Coaco, uh, India, you probably shouldn't even, other than, we'll get to it when we get to it. Uh, thoughts on forced annexation and how to prevent it, which is a real threat to a lot of people like me that live in unincorporated areas. Um, treated lumber in highly acidic soils, not so much a health concern, but a last concern, as in how long will it. Uh, next uh, on the GMO agenda is nitrogen fixation in non-legume crops. We'll explain what that means if you don't know what nitrogen fixation is in a bit, but I'll tell you what I think is really going on uh, and why the concerns brought up in the article that I have linked to really are not the actual concerns to be worried about. Uh, question on using free mulch from landscapers. Are there any concerns there? Uh, choosing a 1911 for concealed carry. Um, and I'll tell you today also why I actually agree with the judge who said Trump cannot block his critics On Twitter, I think a lot of people would be surprised that I would agree with that, but uh, when I tell you why, I think it'll make perfect sense unless you just don't want it to. Um, how I use bacon grease in our kitchen, and the basics of surf fishing. Told you it was diverse today. We'll get to all of that in just a bit. Before we get to your feedback, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today is Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason. The Berkey Guy. Not the sort of Berkey Guy. Not the... I'm also a Berkey guy, but the original, the one and only, the Berkey guy. And what are you going to get from the Berkey guy? Berkey Water Filtration Systems. And since he is one of the largest dealers of Berkey products in the world, he will get you the best pricing you're going to get anywhere. He also has something that I think is far more important than just pricing. If you look at a Berkey, 
and you look at the cost per gallon produced, it's cheap. But in the end, when you look at the initial cost, it's a little expensive, a few hundred bucks, a couple hundred bucks, depending on what you're buying, how many filters, etc. So if you can get it for like five or ten bucks less from somebody, does it really matter? When you look at like the price per gallon produced over the life of the system, that's not why you're buying, you know, you're not buying it over five or ten bucks, right? What's really important is, let's say that because people do make mistakes in the world and there's a problem, you can pick up the phone or send an email and you can get freaking help and get your problem corrected. I say this not lightly, because I have the best sponsors I think that any podcaster has ever had from a standpoint of quality people that care about their customers. But among my sponsors, not among the world of crappy service, among my sponsors, Jeff the Berkey guy has no equal in customer service. He is beyond excessive. He is so excited. I haven't told this story in a while. I had him on a discussion panel at an expo. One of five people in a discussion panel. In the middle of the discussion, he was on his iPad answering customer service questions because he was at a convention and he actually had more time sitting on a panel to do that than while he was in his booth. You just don't see dedication like that anymore. Jeff has it. That's why if you need Berkey or Berkey products, you should go to Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason. He has other cool stuff for your prepping needs as well at directive21.com. Next up today, Safe Castle Royal, the original survival podcast sponsor. I started this show almost 10 years ago. 10 years ago. We were about to have our 10th anniversary in less than a month, our official anniversary date. And more on our anniversary later in the show, by the way. Um, and I have been working with Vic Rontala almost since the beginning, who's the, the head of Safe Castle and founder of Safe Castle. I heard from them. I was about 20 episodes into the show. We want to sponsor the show. And I'm like, I, I don't have enough of an audience. I'm like, I don't know, 15 people listening to me. I can't take your money. Like, when you're ready, let us know. We can see where this is going. About six months later, we brought them on as our first sponsor. We built the entire sponsorship program, the approval process, everything around them. And they have been with us since then, and they have never even thought about leaving. They have everything you can think of for your prepping needs. They've got it all. They're like a warehouse store for prepping. They've got great customer service, and they have a discount buyer's club that other people pay $29 a year for. You can get a lifetime membership in it for free if you're an MSB member. Strong supporters, all your stuff, great customer service. Our two sponsors today are among the best in the industry. So check them out if you have a need for water filtration or anything else for your preps. Next up, let's real quick take a look at a year from history. Before we get into your feedback, we have the year 134 A.D. We have from David Verne on TSPWiki.com, May his bones be crushed. May his bones... Someone not well thought of, right? Uh, contributed by David Verne. During the campaign to retake Judea, the Romans have captured around 50 Jewish strongholds and 985 villages. Their tactics of methodically laying siege to towns has worked, and the Jewish leader Simon Bar Kobka has retreated to his fortress of Betzar. What had been a campaign to reconquest has become a campaign of annihilation, as Roman legions burn down villages and an estimated 580,000 Jews are killed or die from famine. My take by David Verm. Hadrian was coming to the conclusion that Judea would continue to cause serious revolts as long as the Jews maintained their religious and cultural identity. At the end of the revolt, he would outlaw circumcision and Jewish scholars. 
ceremonially burned the Jewish holy scrolls on the Temple Mount, banned Jews from Jerusalem, and renamed Judea Syria-Palestine. The region wouldn't become significantly Jewish until modern times. The Jews would face harsh persecution until Hadrian's death, and because he attempted a cultural genocide of their race and religion, Jewish historians follow Hadrian's name with the line, May his bones be crushed. Yeah, as we heard earlier, they're not exactly fond of Simon Barkopka, who started this rebellion as well. This really was one of the turning points for the Jewish people and led to basically generation upon generation of not having a home, not having a place to be, not having a place of their own. And there's a lesson here, regardless of what side you would take anywhere. And that lesson is from the art of war. And it is never fight a battle, never fight a war, never engage in combat unless victory is assured. And that means that even if you are noble in your desire to revolt or rebel or create insurrection, even if you are rebelling against a tyrant, even if you are being oppressed, that you should be sure of your time and your tactics of attack, lest you become annihilated which is exactly what happened here. And my instinct, because I haven't studied this deeply, like I have some of the other stuff we've talked about in history, this is actually really interesting to me because it's it's a time period that I don't know a lot about from history. But my my instinct here is old Simon, Bar Kubka, uh, was very ambitious. I wanted not this independence for his people, but his this independence so he could be its ruler. And that will make a person jump sometimes when they should not. My thoughts by Jack Spierko. With that, let's go ahead and get into uh, your feedback today. I've got a lot of really great stuff for you today. Let's start out with a question on labeling plants and what happens when you don't. comes in from Tom. Tom says, um, Hi, Jack. I'm a new gardener that didn't label anything he put in the ground this year. Well, some stuff I can identify, there's some I cannot. So I'm just looking an example of what not to do, I guess. Uh, I planted my first garden and didn't label anything. I knew what every plant was in the seed tray, but my head was all over the place when transplanting that didn't mimic the same layout. So I was so excited about translating my seedlings, I transplanting my seedlings, I just forgot to mark them. So I had two pepper plants die, and I don't know which two. I'll eventually know, but that doesn't help me now. I felt really dumb, but after listening to one of your latest aquaponics videos where you questioned the plant, I just felt a smidgen less dumb, so I figured I would share I'm sure at some point I can get away without labeling, but as a newbie, I think it would have been wise. Perhaps my oversight can prove as a warning other first-time gardeners out there. P.S. I planted some companion plants like sunflowers around the bed. I didn't mark those either, so now when I'm weeding, I'm not sure what I'm pulling up a weed or a valuable plant. Live and learn. Uh, thanks, Tom. Tom, this is not that big of a deal. And so here's a couple different ways to look at it. In general, I don't care. In general, I don't care. I do polyculture planting, and you know when the plant starts producing. It is a good idea to familiarize yourself with leaf pattern recognition, though. So if you planted uh, sunflowers as a companion plant, as a border plant, I think that's awesome, and you should familiarize yourself with what a sunflower seedling looks like. It's pretty easy to identify. Um, it's not complicated, and there's not really a lot that looks like it. So that will help you with your weeding versus destroying your own productive plants. My actual preferential way to do this, if you are planting in beds, 
And if you're planning at, you know, some sort of interval spacing, whatever, like doing a square foot gardening type layout or something like that, is to simply draw a diagram of the bed. And even if you're not doing square foot gardening, create a square pattern of your bed and then label your plants, which can also be an entire row of like green beans, which I probably wouldn't label because, well, I know what green beans look like. Uh, and if I plant a row of something like that, I'm going to know that I did. But, you know, you could do it at ever, however you want. Because the problem with labeling plants with any kind of in-ground thing is that thing eventually fades out or gets buried or gets lost. Just inevitably. Um, you can do it, and I have done it, but I, I'm less likely to do it anymore. I do buy plants still from the box stores, especially sometimes in the spring. You're trying to get stuff done. You know, if there's a common pepper or a common tomato or something that I really like to grow, and in fact, I know I'm going to be able to get that every year, I'm a lot more likely to just buy it. Uh, there's a feed store locally that sells a locally produced started plant that I actually get for a lot less money and a lot better quality, but they have little nylon inserts with stamped names. If I happen to be planting one of those, I put that little thing in the ground right next to it. There's no reason not to. In general, though, I, I don't really get too anal about that. Um, I am I have this year kind of planted more in sectors in my bed since I have so many of them now. So all I it, you know when you take a, a bed and say all my peppers in this bed are going to be jalapenos, you don't really need to label. So that's another way to do it. But just don't worry about it. I mean, it, in the end, what grows grows. And then I think the more important thing than labeling what you planted is writing down what worked. Because you'll find that even people like, well, I can grow the hell out of peppers, but you find out it's like two or three varieties that do really well for them. For instance, I know that jalapenos do good here, and cubanelles do good here. Now I've got other stuff growing, and it's doing okay. I, my Anaheims are awesome this year. I just made some into a soup that was, oh my god, good. Um, like an Aztec-style pork soup uh, with the roasted Anaheims and roasted heirloom tomatoes in it. It off the hook. Um But not all peppers do really good. A lot of them do. I mean, I don't have a problem. My buddy David says I'm the pepper whisperer. He gets pissed. He's like, you got peppers everywhere, and they're all doing good, and they all have peppers on them already. What the hell? Um, it's a good climate for peppers. But I do know, like, the ones that do best for me. So while I'll grow some other stuff, I know that I'm going to grow Cubanelles every year. And that thing's more important than labeling. Because the easiest thing to do is once you know that, like if you're going to want four, plant six, and if two die, you don't care. And if two don't die, you get extra peppers or you call them out. So don't sweat it and don't feel dumb about it. I mean, it's, I, you know, I think the last person that would sit around labeling all his vegetables if he was still around is Bill Mollison. You know, I don't think you'd find a Bill Mollison garden with all the plants labeled unless it was an educational garden that he knew he was going to be asked over and over again, what's this, what's this, what's this? It's, I think, actually kind of more important for that. Um, now, I will say this. I'm building these wicking beds right now to go with this new aquaponics system, which right now, part seven is uploading of that video series if you've been following it. And these are going to be four-foot-by-four-foot four beds. With the exception of some of these beds are going to be completely dedicated beds. Like the probably I have a bunch of sunchokes and I need to get them freaking planted before it gets too late this year, and so that first one when it gets filled up I'm probably going to make it a sunchoke bed and I'm going to have some dedicated beds, but of these ten beds I think I am actually going to go back to good old square foot gardening because it's so functional in a four by four bed, 
and it'll let me create diversity and play around and micromanage soil plots and stuff like that. So when I do that, I probably will just make a little... And what you can do then is you just make a, you know laminate basically a little card that has the diagram and leave it out there. And what you'll find if you do that... And I know for me it's easier because I have this weird, screwed-up, unnatural memory. Um, but if you do that, I think you'll very quickly find you'll know what every plan in that bed is. And you'll know, like, okay, that's not doing good. And what I like about square foot gardening is when something's not doing good, you just plant something else in that space immediately. Like, even if you think it might survive, just go and plant a little plant right next to it. And if that little plant overtakes it, get, get it out of there. That way you never waste space. It's a really efficient way to manage I'm not totally in love with the old square foot gardening thing, but I really like the mind of Mel Bartholomew who came up with it, and it does work, and it's one of the great entry points for people into uh, into gardening. So I think it's really, uh, really worth checking out. Uh, next up, this one comes from John in Park, who sends me so much material, so much quality material. John, thank you for all you do out there. Um, but it's, it says, rare virus kills more than a dozen in India. Health officials warn it could cause a global epidemic. Fox News. And uh, it says, one to watch or only hype? And the reality, John, and everybody out there, is this one is mostly hype. Not only hype, but mostly hype. Um, when we look at this, we need to understand what's going on right now. From a standpoint of what the media is doing with this, including big news like Fox News and especially alternative media. They're not naming the virus. Rare virus kills more than a dozen in India. Now, if you said Nipah virus kills more than a dozen in India, since it has a name, it's already less scary. But by saying rare virus, and the way that, not Fox News in particular, but especially these alternative media outlets, which so many are so engaged in clickbait, It sounds when you hear the headlines as though this is a new thing, some rare deep jungle virus that we didn't even know about showed up and now it's here, like the plot of some movie or something. Nipah is one of the most deadly viruses in the world. It has a death rate, which makes it very concerning, of 70% or more. 70% or more. But its existence and human-to-human -human transmission are not new. Uh, when I looked up some transmission information, I found a report from the CDC all the way back in 2014, which isn't a long time ago, but it is four years, showing not like this just happened, stating that specifically in India where this is going on, human-to-human -human transmission reports are common. Common. The world didn't burn down in 2014 or 2004. It certainly didn't burn down in 2008 when I did my first podcast and I started talking about the threat of a global pandemic that I believe eventually will happen from some source, something. And I told you about Nipah all the way back then in 2008. Yeah, really. So this is not unknown. This is not new. This is not something that was cooked up in a lab. This is a virus that is carried primarily by fruit bats. And not the fruit bats that annoy us on the Internet, but real, honest-to-God, flying fox-looking fruit bats that eat fruit. And... This happens mainly in like Malaysia, Bangladesh, and India. There's two kind of hot zones uh, where this, this thing picks up, where these bats live in large numbers. And what happens is these bats feed on fruit, 
and then people eat the fruit, and then people get the virus. Because it's transmitted primarily through saliva. And that's important. Now, any, and, and pigs also can transmit this diet, this disease as well. Though pig to human transmission through consumption has not occurred. This is a salvic transmitted disease. So unless you plan to go around swapping spit from people that just stepped off a plane from India, you probably don't have nothing to worry about. Okay? Right now. The danger of things like Nipah and any deadly virus, Ebola, etc., is the potential of them to mutate into something that is far more easily transferable. If you had something with the death rate of Nipah, with the transmission uh, ability and the, 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 the ease of transmission from human-human contact of the common cold, you would have a problem, to say the least. These deadly diseases, though, one of their saving graces, as sad as it is, is how quickly they incapacitate and kill This naturally limits their ability to spread. It's the primary reason that Ebola has not come to the United States. People freaking get it and they freaking die. Okay? This is less of a threat to us in its current form than Ebola is. And you guys that have been around a while know how I basically crapped all over the hype around Ebola and said stop worrying about it. So you don't need to worry about this right now. That, tr that, that ability to mutate is always the problem. Again, this thing, its natural carrier is a bat. The bats can live with it for a long time, hence they are a good vector of the disease. It doesn't kill them quickly. Okay, That's why they transmit it. In fact, in many instances, there's bats that have, like, basically they carry it, and they're just flat carriers of it. It has no effect on them whatsoever. And there's in, in Malaysia, they collect a fruit juice, in these bags, and the bats come at night and drink the juice. Well, that's their problem. In India, it's just the bats feeding on the fruit and people doing things they shouldn't do, like picking up fallen fruit. Of course, you're hungry, so you got it. Now, let's talk about, let's put some numbers. I'm always big on putting numbers to these things when they're being hyped. Because I think when we put numbers on things, we tend to, uh, to, 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 to get... A true understanding of them. So what I did is I looked into, well, where is this happening? Is this like all over India and there's a dozen people dead? Because that would be a number I don't even know if I could calculate the percentage. It turns out it's, it's happening right now in a place called Coacode. And it's not how it looks like it's spelled, but when I looked up pronunciation, that's how they said you're supposed to say it. So I'll say it's Coacode. They have a population of about a half a million people. And I do oh, a dozen died out of a half a million! If you lived in Coacode, by the numbers, you would have a two-thousandth of one percent chance of contracting NIPA and dying. A two-thousandth of one percent chance if you were living in the place where this is ground zero right now. Now, I, I don't know if any of you watch TV and have ever watched like documentaries on what life in India is like. It ain't good. I'm not putting anybody down, but I don't want to live there. And the proximity and how close people live to each other and the living conditions, sanitation and all, especially where rich people don't live, is pretty damn bad. It ain't as bad as the areas where Ebola was raging in Africa, but it's close. It is, to use a word that pisses people off, but it's the true word for the situation, so I'll use it. It is, in many instances, a shithole. And there's places in Mexico that are shitholes where people die of diarrhea. 
To, to put that in perspective, and you got to put that in that perspective if you want to control your fear and reaction to things like this. So in the midst of poor sanitation and incredibly dense population, your chances of dying over the last month in, in COA code were two thousandths of one percent. To put that in perspective, real numbers of perspective, there's about 37,000 people a year die on the highways in America. Out of 300 million people, you have roughly a 1% chance of dying in a car wreck in America, while you have a 2,000th of 1% chance of dying of Nipah in Code, India, where the epidemic is. You got it? And I, I think that you always need to kind of run these numbers for some level of rationality. So this makes sense to people, you know, so that you can actually get a grip on it so that you don't overreact. Again, we are at risk at all times that at some point one of these deadly viruses will mutate or some new virus we don't know about will, will go postal on us and screw things up globally. Even if it doesn't kill people everywhere, If you get an actual epidemic with high contagion and high lethality, what it will do to the economy alone is crushing. And so we need to be prepared on an ongoing basis to deal with our systems of support. But we don't need to get reactionary and knee-jerk to something like this. Uh, next up, I have a question on forced annexation. He says, I was wondering if you have any advice on stopping forced annexation. This comes from Aaron. I live in Red Oak, Texas. I just got involved with a group that is collecting signatures to get Ellis County turned into a Tier 2 county, meaning that any town would have to get the consent of the people in the county before they could be annexed into a town. I didn't know this was happening, and we only have until July 6th to get required signatures. I and others are trying our best and was hoping you might give us a shout-out. We need volunteers and signatures. And he gives me a website called stopinvoluntaryannexation.org. I know that I am only looking at Ellis County, but all counties in and out around DFW are doing the same thing. If you like living where I am left alone for the most part, or I like like you like living where I'm left alone for the most part, Aaron. Aaron, I I think it's great that you guys have a group and you're doing something. And if you are in Ellis County, I really recommend that you go to stopinvoluntaryannexation.org and get involved. Because I think it's your signatures that have to be used in Ellis County to get what you want done. Uh, I would love to actually get it done in Tarrant County. And here's the problem with it. For the, the county, there's not a tremendous amount of incentive. Because what is an unincorporated area to the county government? It is an area that you have to provide additional services to because no city or town does. So your sheriff's department has to cover that area. That's the primary thing you have to do as a county that you wouldn't have to do otherwise. Yes, you collect taxes to provide that service, but you collect those taxes where you don't have to provide that service if you get my drift. So they don't get anything extra in return for it. For the cities, they like annexation because they can grow against the will of other people by annexing them, and then they, yes, will have to provide those services, but now they get to tax those people. So... Where do you get support for this? And so here's the next problem. The majority of people in any county anywhere live in incorporated towns and cities. They don't care. They largely do not care. I wish they cared more. They should because you don't have to be for or against something to support the right of others to have it. 
right? I mean, that's that's like one of the biggest problems and disconnects we have in the world right now. If you take just a look at cannabis, and people are like, oh, God, drugs are bad, whatever, we can't have it. Listen, lots of things are bad that are legal. You don't have to be pro-cannabis to be anti-authoritarian, where if, if Joe over there chooses to use his cannabis in any manner he pleases, I don't care if he sticks it up his ass, as long as he'll hurt anybody else, leave him alone. So to get enough people to take up this cause, you have to get people that largely are not impacted by it to care about it. Kind of like eminent domain. I have a, a loathing hatred of this process. And I do concern myself with it happening to me. With someday somebody saying, hey, that area over there has developed pretty well. Let's grab it. What, what, what I've got going for me right now is there's a lot of this area that's not in the best of shape, so you wouldn't get much by doing it. The area that I'm in directly is all doing fairly well and upper-end homes and things like that, but there's not enough of us to make it worth it. So one of the strategic things you can do for yourself is choose your target well when you choose your place. But this is a perfect example of a tyranny of the majority. And you say it doesn't require voter approval, Generally, what happens is the county does it, and then you're forced with a gun at your head to pick one. That just happened to my uh, my vet. He said he had a choice between Lakeside and Lake Worth as townships. In other words, they both decided they were going to annex this area that he lives in, and then it was put to a vote by them, well, which one do you want? Right. So the other thing that will happen is... So let's say Lake Worth decides they want to annex my area. Not likely. It would probably far more likely be Lake Worth. So let's say Lake Worth decides they want to annex my area. I don't get to vote in Lake Worth. So it's, it's a lot of times what they will do is they'll put it to a vote, but you don't get to vote because you're not part of the town. So they'll tell their citizens how much it would benefit them to increase the tax base. And then the citizens will vote to annex you in an election you don't even get to vote in. This is basically eminent domain at the county level or the city level. We're just going to grab you and make you be part of us. And I don't even think it's reasonable to annex if you do get to vote. I think it's a good defensive posture. At least we can say no, and if 51% of us say no, then fine. But... Well, what about the, let's what say it's a 90% vote, but 10% are happy with the way things are. Why should they be compelled to become part of a city that when they bought the land, it wasn't that way, and they don't want any part of it? This is one of the problems we have in our country today, that this is even doable. Personally, I think if you want to annex a person's property, you should have to have their consent. Well, what if Joe Blow has his little three acres like Jack does in the middle like an island and everybody else wants to be part of it? Great, then Joe Blow gets to keep his little piece is an unannexed parcel. Just like if you formed a homeowner's association, as much as I loathe those, if I don't agree to it, I don't have to be part of it. And that's how that works now. You can't compel someone to join your homeowner's association. That's why they always set them up when they do the development. But if you, all your neighbors get together and want to do an HOA, they can't make you be part of it. They can't do it. 
Again, this is why they do it when developments are... That's why you... The people say you can't find a place without an HOA anymore. Well, if you're looking at new builds, it's getting harder and harder. Because generally, they set one up when they do it. And they use it to sell it to soccer moms and crap like that. But um, I don't have any ideas other than, you know, organizing. And my neighbors and I say we'll be on the freaking roof with rifles if they try it here, you know? I mean, what else can you do? I think you get as much media exposure as you can on this issue and explain. Look, we're not part of that. We don't want to be part of that. There's no compelling reason for us to be part of what they're doing. They're just grabbing it because they can. And I think, I guess, effective use of the media is probably the number one tool that you have at your disposal. Because, again, you have to get people who are largely unaffected by it care about the fact that their fellow Americans' freedoms are being violated. I live in a town. I don't understand what's so bad about it. That's the that's the problem you're going to get into. So, uh, again, if you live in Ellis County, get involved with this. There's a link in today's show notes. Next up, I have a question from Daniel. Daniel says, my question has to do with treated lumber and highly acidic soil. Our soil has an average pH of 5.1. What would you recommend using as fence posts for ag fencing? I have most of my fence up, but have a bit more to go. I heard you mention how acidic soil will neutralize the treatment, and I'm wondering if going forward... I need to pursue another option. Thanks, Daniel. Well, it isn't that it will neutralize it. It will reduce its longevity. So when you have dry alkaline soils and, and modern treated lumber is treated with, with a chemical called ACQ, or alkaline copper quaternary, and uh, some of it's also treated with copper azole, or CA. And the copper prevents... Um, insects in general, and the alkaline and quaternary tend to prevent uh, mold and fungus. So what you're really doing is you're keeping the wood from either being attacked by insects or attacked by fungi. Wood in its natural state is actually dramatically stable. If it stays, if it stays wet and oiled in some fashion... It can last longer than human beings, even woods that we think of as generally breaking down pretty quickly. But as soon as fungi entered the equation, they're the teeth of the forest, as Jeff Lawton says, and in that role, they're quite beneficial to us. Or insects, you know, termites, carpenter bees, anything that either nests in or, or feeds on wood, then that life expectancy begins to dramatically reduce. So this stuff, actually, what it's doing is keeping the fungus and the bugs at bay. And, as, and again, as I've said, the, the, this ACQ is not anything that you should concern yourself with environmentally. They're, they're, every time you take a breath outside, you have more risk than if you use these timbers, let's say, for a raised garden bed. But you will have a faster loss of the effectiveness the more acidic and the more moist. And it's either or and both together or even more so. So what can you do? Well, one of the things you can do is you can keep the ground contact part of the, the fence post uh, from being in contact with the ground by encasing it in, let's say, concrete. That could get rather expensive, though, putting in a large amount of ag posts, right? So I don't know if that applies to you. But in general, if you're using pressure-treated lumber and you put down, a, you know, you dig a, a post hole, and you put down a layer of gravel for drainage, and you drop that post in, and then you throw a sackcrete around it, um, you've got a very alkaline property in your concrete. So you've created a little nest of alkalinity. And it's probably going to last a pretty long time for you. 
Again, all things relative. You know, does dirt pile up on it? Is it acidic? Is it wet? You know, that type of thing. Uh, the the options you have one would be the classic use if you have access to locust trees. Black locusts in in the in the most acidic moist soils will still last like seventy to a hundred years. It's and everybody always says, "Well, just use locusts." Okay, well, I'll just walk down to the locust store and buy. Oh, they don't have one of those, right? Well, I got it going all over my property. Well, you're nine hundred miles away from me, and it doesn't help me, does it? You know, so if you had it, that would work. Darby Simpson uses fiberglass uh, poles, and I don't remember exactly where he gets them, but you can get on over to Darby's website and and, and contact him, and I guarantee you he'll give you an answer. Uh, and that, that lasts forever. So fiberglass, you know, any type of metal is obviously going to have a longer lifespan than uh, pressed tree wood, but it's going to cost more. Fiberglass is going to cost more. So, you know, those are things to look at. The other thing is like a long-term solution would be planting your own things like locusts. What Mark Shepard does, he, he, he's not actually a huge fan of the whole legume thing for nitrogen fixation that we're going to talk about later. And that's because he lives in a place where it's less critical because you have, you know, deep clay soils where nitrogen doesn't leach away as fast. Uh, and he has grazing animals and things like that, that that make up for a lot of need with that. But he still sees a lot of utility in things like black locust. And he'll plant locusts where he wants fence post. And within five years, you know, you got a substantial tree. And then you tack insulators to it and run your fencing on a living black locust tree. And, and you know, that that's, be, you know, if the tree died, you cut the top off it, you got another friggin' 50 to 100 years sitting there. So that, that would be another option. And, and the old, you know, you could use other trees for it, but. Black locust is probably the best one, so that'd be another option. That doesn't help you immediately, but you could plan that. You know, you could go out and you can get locust seedlings for next to nothing, and everywhere you want a fence post, plant two of them, and then kill one once you know that the other one's going to make it. That's your insurance policy, and then you've got a living fence, but you're still going to run your wires. That would be another option. There's 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 lots of options there, um, but I wouldn't really sweat. The pressure tree lumber thing. It's just, it's going to last me in arid alkaline Texas longer than it's going to last you in a probably more humid, acidic environment. That's that's all there really is to that. Next up, another one from John. John says, synthetic biologists are currently working on it to engineer nitrogen fixation into crops. It's a worthy goal as it could decrease the use of fossil fuels to manufacture nitrogen fertilizer and prevent runoff of said fertilizer into water sources. But they should bear in mind that when left to their own devices, plants get, got rid of the ability to fix nitrogen time and time again. And how are they engineering this? Plants repeatedly got rid of their ability to obtain their own nitrogen on Apple News. Um, and there's a link to an article, and you can read the article. I'm not going to read it to you. I'm going to give you the upshot. They went back and they looked at the genetic ancestry of a bunch of plants. And many of them, at some point... And, and some of these plants were ornamental, some of them were of commercial value for food production, some of them were just weeds, but they went and looked. And in, in a lot of these plants, they were able to find that at some point in history, they obtained the ability to fix nitrogen the way a bean does, for instance. So let's talk about how that works. So no plant actually can fix nitrogen on its own. All of the nitrogen fixers that we know of anyway, have a symbiotic relationship with a bacterial node, the bacteria that forms a node on their roots. 
So when you pull up healthy growing beans that have that bacteria available to them from good soil, you will pull that out of the ground, see a great big root system, you see those little pinkish whitish nodules all over the roots. And that is a symbiotic relationship, meaning both sides get something out of it. The plants basically are giving certain exudates, which means energy, food, to the bacteria. The bacteria are fixing nitrogen, and in return, they're sharing some of the nitrogen, not all of the nitrogen, with the plants. And then the plants take that nitrogen up. So these leguminous plants and some other symbiotic-having plant species are generally pioneers. They can grow where there's low available nitrogen because nitrogen is never in short supply because it's like 72% or 78% of the atmosphere. That's a, it's everywhere, but it has to be in a form that the plant can take into its roots. So this does not come for free, and the plants generally need a good solar exposure for at least eight hours a day for this to happen. And in general, we think of nitrogen fixation as great because we'll put legumes in here and we'll share nitrogen with the corn. Right, So beans and corn together. It doesn't work that way. Because while the beans are alive, they need the nitrogen, and they're the one paying for it with the energy they're sharing with the, the bacteria. So the, the corn is a freeloader as far as the beans concerned. So what happens is the beans fix nitrogen in con conjunction with the, the bacteria, and then when the beans die and there's no place left for the bacteria to do their thing, those little nodules of nitrogen are now like fertilizer in the soil and become available to the corn next year. That's how that actually works. So why would plants ditch this from a, a pure genetic you know, standpoint, a natural selection standpoint? Well, if you don't use an, a, a, a genetic ability, then there'll be no need for it, and therefore there'll be no survival advantage to those among your species that have it, And therefore, it will eventually just fall off, and natural selection will work the other way and get rid of it. Well, if you have effective biological systems, uh, like all natural systems are when we don't screw them up, then nitrogen availability is one of the least important things for plants. To make it clear, you're not going to go into an established forest, pull the leaf litter back and look down at that beautiful black soil that's underneath it, Take that and test it and find it to be deficient in available nitrogen. So in natural systems with large amounts of, of polyculture, which all natural systems are polyculture, and they will become polyculture even if they don't start out that way, there will always be enough organic matter and humic acid and humus that there will be available nitrogen. So the only plants that need to be able to fix nitrogen are the ones that are your pioneering species. They either need to be able to fix it or do with very small amounts of it. So they have a particular purpose and role that they serve in, in the natural ecosystem. So all the plants that don't serve that role don't really benefit from the behavior, and therefore they lose the ability to do it. So that's what's going on, and that's why they drop it. Now, let's talk about why would a big old chemical company like... Monsanto or Conagra develop this when they're in the business of selling chemicals. I mean, they're reducing fertilizer requirements. That's not good for them. Well, they're not doing it out of like this uh, this obligation to mankind. Well, of course, what they'll do is when they develop, let's say, a corn plant that can fix nitrogen, well, they'll patent it for 20 years. 
And then they'll tell farmers how it will save them money, and the farmers will have to spend more money to buy the corn. And, of course, the price of this thing will go up after a couple of years once they start using it and get hooked on it like crack. So you always give the crack cheap to the person that's not an addict. Once they become an addict, you jack up the price. See how it works? Okay? Well, I, I guarantee you <laughs> that they're also working on a form of the bacteria specific to the corn that they will also have a patent on. They'll, they'll engineer the bacterium. It ain't going to be the plain old open source bacteria that you can buy for your beans and rub it on there. So then they're going to sell the bacteria, which they will also patent. So all this is is, is, a, is a shell game. And then if you think if you're Monsanto or Conagra, you have a big monopoly on a lot of this stuff, right? You, have, you own this market. What you don't own is a fertilizer market. Fertilizer is a commodity. NPK is, a, is, is, is a, one of the biggest commodities in the world. The, the farmer buys whatever's cheapest. He doesn't give a damn that it comes from Monsanto or not. There's nothing proprietary about Monsanto NPK. So they're eliminating their competition. Here's the other risk. And this is I've always said this about GMOs. I'm not anti-science, and as a thing, as a concept, I'm not even anti-GMO completely. I'm open to the idea. But what are you modifying the plant to do and why? Well, if we're, if we're doing this for the purpose of nitrogen fixation to eliminate fertilizer runoff, that's nothing about that could be terrible. Except you still have to fertilize the P and the K, the potassium and the phosphorus, which also create their own problems in runoff. But eliminating a lot of the nitrogen runoff into our creeks, the dead zone, all of that stuff, even though we could fix it permanently with a few billion dollars worth of earthworks, Okay, I, I, I get that. But what you're really saying is, here's another reason you don't need to take care of your soil. And imagine if we could engineer crops to provide their own nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium. Then we could just grow them in shit, right? Dirt, like, like dust, inert nothingness. So the, the larger environmental implications are highly negative, See, I'm back to if we could engineer plants to be resistant to something like a fungal blight, well, that's actually beneficial. That's actually beneficial because we have crops that are just devastated by fungal blights. And if we could engineer that immunity in, but then what does the, the, the chemical company that, that pretends it's an agricultural company, like Monsanto, really get out of that? Sure, they get a patented seed variety. But if you don't have something to sell with it, it's not a moneymaker. See, they make the herbicide that the plant is immune to, and they sell you the seed and the herbicide. That's why they're, if you look at every GMO crop, there's something that goes with it. They're stacking that as a model of revenue. And it, it, it works financially, but it's not moving us to greater sustainability. It's not moving farmers to actually more profitability. Farmers today are less profitable per acre than they've ever been. A hundred years ago, 50 years ago, there were guys with 80 acres that supported families with six kids and sent half or more of them to college. You can barely eke out a living on 80 acres today if you're farming the way we're talking about. Corn, beans, stuff like that. 
You can barely pay for the land with it. Let alone feed and raise a family in a home that you build and add on. You go, well, we got our kid, let's add a bedroom. That's how it used to be just 50 years ago. It was the 1970s when the head of the agricultural department for the United States came out and said, go big or go home. And he meant it. And they made money available to farmers for cheap, like 2%, 3% money. Less than a rate of inflation. It was like a negative interest rate. Well, you know what happened? Within 10 years, we had Willie Nelson doing farm aid because no one else would do anything about it. So when the man said go big or go home, he meant it. Let's take another one. Next up, um, I don't know who it is. Let's call him Camp. Just an abbreviated piece of his last name because he didn't give me a first name. So Camp says, uh, question, are there issues with free mulch from local landscape contractors? I plan to use free mulch, making a pathway around our yard and for some garden beds. They usually post the mulch. They say they are, they are not guard-ready or need to be seasoned. What are the problems with using them? Well, not guard-ready and not They need to be seasoned. Uh, mm. Sounds like what they're promising then is you can take this stuff and compost it. Uh, or it's partially composted and therefore it's hot compost. I don't know. You're going to have to find out. Here's, here's the question I have when I'm talking to any kind of local landscaping company about free shredded mulch with big-ass air quotes around free because if it hurts you, it costs you. Right? Okay. Where, what is the source of your mulch? If they say, well, we do a lot of tree trimming and bush trimming and stuff like that, and we carry around a great big shredder, and all that stuff goes in the shredder, and that's what we have. I'll use it. There, there's going to be very little herbicide chemical problems with that stuff. If it includes grass clippings then I'm not going to use it because it's probably full of uh, broadleaf herbicides. And what I mean by broadleaf herbicides is it doesn't kill grass, and it kills almost everything else. That's your weed and feed, right? That, that's what they're doing. They have, you know, grass is a resilient crop, and most of, not everything, because we have crabgrass, but most of the weeds that grow in our lawns, We actually care about weeds the way people do. Uh, are broadleaf plants. They're plantain. It's dandelion. It's dollar weed. It's you know what I'm saying. Broadleaf instead of you know grass leaf. And so that's what they'll do. Apply to lawns. Well, if we, what do you grow in your garden? Right. And it kills clovers. Right. So what do you grow in your garden? You grow broadleaf primarily in your garden. So you might end up with something that if you were growing barley or rye really wouldn't have an effect on it, but it will it will cause, and usually it won't kill, it'll cause really crappy growth, it'll cause susceptibility to diseases that would otherwise not be there, etc. So that's all I want to know, dude, is, is where are you getting it from? And if it's tree trimmings and not grass clippings, and there's no agricultural product in it, meaning coming from farms, then I'll take it all day long. So that's who you're looking for is tree trimmers. And bush trimmers and stuff like that. No grass. Grass is bad, okay? Because you and the thing is, you could get some today and have no problem with it whatsoever. And uh, you could get some uh, uh, tomorrow, and it could be just rife with true green camelon crap that was put on it two days before they cut it. So you just don't know. No grass. I will take grass clippings from neighbors, etc., who are on no program or organic programs. 
Grass is not the problem, it's what's on the grass. Just like GMO is not the problem, it's why you're doing it and what you're doing it to and how you're doing it that's the problem. So next up, we have a gun question. Told you we had a lot of diversity in our topics today, but uh, the question is uh, from, let me see, because I got the wrong email pulled up. It's from Christopher. Christopher says, hey, Jack, Chris is in Minnesota here with a gun itch. I'm wondering what 1911 you would recommend to someone for carry. Uh, to start, I owned a Kimber Custom Carry a couple of years ago. Loved it, but wanted the cash instead. Well, the 1911 gems aren't getting cheaper and would like, once again, uh, without having to rent a kidney, I would occasionally carry it and have it for the range. Uh, like something non-jamomatic in nature, I'm eyeing the Palmetto State Arms 1911 or Rock Island Arms. Are these any good, or should I just buy once and cry once? I don't care about length as much, but about reliability and accuracy. Chris, I disagree with your contention that you don't care about length, because you will when you start carrying the dead gone thing. And you say you won't carry it much. Well, if you get a full-size 1911, you'll carry it less than you would otherwise. I have a PT 1911. I love it. I've carried it a lot. Um, it is not the most comfortable gun to carry. Uh, the 1911 to me is one of the greatest inventions of mankind. It may be the ultimate weapon of all time. I know you can put more bullets in your Glock, Glock guys, but that's because you need them, cause you, <laughs> because you do. I also believe that spending good money on good guns is a good investment. So as long as you can afford it, I would look up in that $900, $1,200 range for something that will be not only something you love, but it's around for a long time, you're really going to love it, you're going to probably start carrying it more rather than less, and you'll leave it to your kids. Um, to drive this point home, as much as I love the 1911, my current gun of choice is a SIG 239 that I've converted over to uh, 357 SIG. When I found out I could do that by dropping a barrel, and all of a sudden that gun went from something that I bartered for and kind of liked having around to something that was like my go-to, because it's a much more comfortable gun to carry. If I were in the market today... I would go out and I would actually look at a company called STI. And my buddy Thad, who is a drill sergeant up in Fort uh, Fort Sill, Oklahoma right now, as a, as a duck a duck hunter, and some of you know who that is, what that means in the military, and it don't mean real ducks, okay? Uh, my duck hunter drill sergeant buddy came down here a couple years ago, and uh, he said, uh, you know, it's, uh, I know you love 1911s, I want you to see this. And he put a gun in my hand called an STI Escort, which apparently they don't make anymore. Uh, they have a new version of it, which I think is called a DVC or DVD, DVC carry. Uh, but it looks like the exact same gun. And uh, he put that in my hands, and I went, i got to have one. And I managed to talk myself out of it. It was also right about the time that I uh, found out I could convert that, that SIG 239 and decided that I would go with that. Um, when I emailed Thad, then I said, what was that gun? He came back with STI Escort, and here was his, his thoughts on this. And this guy is a truly dedicated gun fanatic, right? So he, he's got this down. Uh, the advantages of this weapon, smaller compact officer model, fits Kimber sort mag, smaller magazine, but still fits 7 plus 1. All pieces made to fit exact weapon, handmade in Texas, excellent stock trigger system, 3 pounds, and sites may come with Trigicon sites, excellent warranty and customer service. Disadvantage is money. You're looking at nine hundred to eighteen hundred dollars depending on the model. And 
you know, I'm okay with that gun going in at more of their entry-level product at $900 to $1,200. That's where I'd be on it. That said, there's a lot of good compact 1911s out there. And uh, I have a link to an article with 13 of kind of the best from Shooter's, Shooter's World. And, and I agree with every single one of them being a viable option. So I'm going to give you that to go look at. If I just start naming names, I have not actually shot most of those. So I would just be saying, hey, you know, this looks good, that looks good. So my bigger thing is I would get out to gun stores and I would handle these guns. You know, I would I would ask to be able to get a holster and, and try putting them on my body. And and I want to know how they, they carry, I want to know how they draw, and I want to know how they feel and how they line up and how they naturally point. They're all going to do well because they're 1911s. It's, 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 you know, the 1911 is the Jedi weapon of the handgun world, in my opinion. And to me, they're just, you can say whatever you want about them. Now, rock, like the Rock Island Arms, this is an inexpensive gun in the world of 1911s. There's things you can do to slick them up a little bit and all, and sometimes if you start really doing that, you'll end up putting enough money in them, you could have just went and got a custom gun to begin with. But, you know, you, off the shelf, they're damn solid. They're just heavy, and they, they, they're not real comfortable guns from a carry standpoint. Now, one thing that the 1911 has going for it, even in the full size, is its profile and its flat, smooth profile makes it carry better than it would otherwise at a same size frame. Uh, and same barrel length, etc. So I, I, I don't think you really can go wrong. I have a Taurus PT-1911. Like I said, I have a couple other ones. Uh, I've heard people talk crap about Taurus, but I got one of those gimmicky 50-round drum magazines that I got on the barter blanket, and I took that thing and loaded it up, and it took some time and effort. And I took that damn thing to the range, and I let 50 fly out of it, like boom, 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 boom. And that thing was smoking hot. It didn't skip a beat. You know, so, I mean, get out. I think the bigger thing, and I think this is true, if possible, for everybody with any, especially handgun. Try to find gun stores that have indoor ranges that will let you rent guns to shoot. And then say, you're close to picking one, say, I want to rent this for you know half an hour, and go shoot it. And go shoot it. And, and I think that does more for you than anything else. Actually having in your hand, actually shooting it, actually experiencing it. You know, when we go buy a car, we test drive it. You know, if we're buying a $150.22, eh, whatever. But if you can test drive your gun, test drive your gun. I think it'll make you a happier customer long term. Let's take another one. Next up, I got a story, and this was all a buzz about a week ago. Um, and I got a link to the article if you want to read it. I'm sure you can find plenty on it. But a federal judge ordered that Donald Trump may not block users who criticize him on Twitter, which has been a standard practice of Mr. Trump. You orange-faced ass clown, block. Okay, which in principle of blocking that type of person on your Twitter account, I have no problem. There's a reason that Twitter gives you the ability to do it. And if you block someone, they can no longer see nor communicate with you on Twitter. Facebook, same type of thing. But Trump has been a heavy user of the Twitter platform since before uh, he began his political campaign. And this gets into a bit of a gray area. I don't think the question is whether or not a president doing official presidential things on a public forum like Twitter 
should be able to block people? Because I think the answer to that is no, it should not. You're acting as President of the United States. You are subject to criticism, therefore, under our First Amendment. Especially in a, in a interactive platform like Twitter where people have the expectation to be able to interact with you. The question is, is, is Donald Trump's Twitter account a public forum because is he using it officially in the capacity of the United States president? And in my view, and this is what the judge said in her decision, he is. In other words, if he had a Donald Trump account, you know, at real Donald Trump, which is his Twitter handle, and he refrained from using it as president, all he did was express personal opinions, maybe you'd have a case. But I don't think when you're president of the United States, you get to do that. Right? We're not talking about an alderman in Chicago here who says, hey, I got my blog over here, and it's Joe Alderman's blog, and I pay for it myself, and I'm not using it on taxpayer funds and during taxpayer hours where I'm supposed to be doing my job, so I, can, I, I maintain my autonomy over here. It would be more like the alderman having a government-provided blog blocking people, which I don't think is acceptable either, unless those comments are actually abusive and threatening. In which case, if you're doing that to the president on Twitter, you're probably going to have a couple people in some black suits knock on your damn door anyway. So I don't have a problem with this. Now, what you get is the slippery slope argument. Without supporting evidence, the claim that it's a slippery slope is a fallacy. It's a logical fallacy. Because A happened, B is inevitable. If the, if, if the, the, if the, the assertion is, since John dropped a ball off of a building, it will hit the ground, that's not a fallacy, and it's not a slippery slope. It's an, it is truly inevitable. The problem with when people use the slippery, slippery slope claim is they speak of it as an inevitability. Right, So, well, if we do this, it, it was the argument used against gay marriage. Well, if, if, we, if we let two dudes get married, next thing you know, some dude's going to want to marry his dog, and we'll have to let him do that too. Well, there's already weirdos that want to marry their dog, and no, we don't have to let them do that. We don't have to entertain mental illness to give equal protection under the law to all people, regardless who they chose to, to share their bedroom with. That's, that's a fallacy. So the question actually is then, Could it be then that eventually some asset who I've blocked from Facebook would sue me, or I've blocked from Twitter would sue me and say, Jack Spirico violated my, uh, my free speech, and here's the precedent where they said the president can't do it. Well, if the president can't do it, Jack Spirico can't do it. I don't see it. Because the judge, in her opinion, specifically stated It was because he was the president and conducting presidential business on Twitter. When you start issuing edicts, threatening or agreeing with foreign delegates, and the capacity is POTUS on something, you are using it as the president. And if you look at the president's tweets, there are times where he's done all those things. So I actually do not have a problem with this. If you're going to be an elected official and you're going to engage with the public... In the capacity of an elected official, you are subject to, to be, you know, criticized. Now, the, here's what's interesting. The judge did not order him to unblock them or to stop blocking. She simply made a judicial statement. This is unconstitutional and should not be done. And then it's expected that the White House, by their own determination, would then now comply with it. 
What I think the president will actually do is probably cease blocking people. He probably won't unblock these people because there's nothing you're going to be able to do about it. A judge can't tell the president what to do. It doesn't work that way. A judge can put an injunction on an order, but a judge cannot order the president to do something. We have a separation of powers. So, in her opinion, she basically stated that when we, the judiciary, issue a finding of what the Constitution says, it is expected that all elected officials will follow it. So it was, it was not a direct order, and I think Trump, just as a giant middle finger because he likes that, will just not unblock these seven people that sued him and stop blocking people. And I don't know what they're going to be. There's, there's really nothing more for them to do. And the, the administration's response is basically, we have bigger fish to fry than this. We're, we're working on a deal with North Korea and shit, like, whatever, we don't care. Uh, next question here, um, let's get rid of that one, that's a repeat. Um, this is from uh, Darren in Missouri. He says, to carry on the theme of meat, in honor of Travis the Vegan Troll, what can we do with our leftover bacon grease and how long will it keep? Should we just put it in a jar in the fridge? Can you give us a list of ways to use leftover bacon grease? I usually throw it away, but I'm sure there are good uses for it sometimes. Could you share a few details for a recipe or two? So what I did, I went out and got basically a glazed ceramic jar with like one of those lockdown lids on it. And uh, I have a little bitty colander, a little strainer. I actually bought like a package, I had like three, a little one, a medium one, and a big one. And so I keep that little strainer in the drawer right near the stove. And when I'm done cooking bacon, I let the grease cool a little bit so it's still easily poured but not scalding hot. And I put that little strainer over the top of the thing, and I strain all the little bits and stuff out, and I strain it into there, and I keep it there. And I don't keep it in the refrigerator, and it probably would stay good longer, but we use it rapidly enough. My grandmother always kept it in a jar on the stove next to the stove. So that's what I do. And it never caused any problems. And I have one time not used it for long enough, and because of some things that were going on, we weren't cooking a lot of bacon And uh, it kind of went like you smelled it like, eh, I don't think I want to use this anymore. Washed it out and just started over. What do I use it for? Everything. But I use it mainly for frying and sauteing things. So like if I'm going to do wilted greens, there's nothing for that like bacon grease. So I'll just take a couple tablespoons, get it nice and hot, wilted greens in it. And, you know, a little salt and pepper. You don't need much more flavor because you all that flavor from bacon. Uh, we don't do baked goods like, you know, cakes and stuff like that. But substituting bacon grease... You would think there'd be like this, uh, I don't know, like a heavy bacon flavor. It, comes, it really doesn't. Like when you do that, pancakes are fantastic. Add a little bit of bacon grease into them instead of. So, whatever the recipe calls for an oil, substitute bacon grease. Uh, anything you do with lard, you can pretty much do with bacon grease. And in some ways, bacon is kind of like cured smoked lard. Um, I am a big fan of baking bacon. I, I finally became a convert to that. And one of the big wins in baking your bacon, and what I do, I get it. It's like a sheet pan like you cook cookies on, and then you get a cooling rack that you would put cookies on to cool. And you put the cookie the cookie cooling rack inside the sheet pan, fits perfect, and the bacon sits on there, and then it, it, it bakes in the oven. And if you have a convection oven, use a convection setting, and about 425 is my temperature for about 20 minutes. Your oven will vary. You figure that out. Well, you take a piece of aluminum foil and put it in the sheet. That way it doesn't burn on the pan and it ain't a pain in the butt to clean up. And when you fry bacon in a pan, it usually turns kind of brownish and gets a little burnt and gets a little vanilla flavor to it. It's still good, but it's you know not as good. When you do it in a baked sheet, 
you get like clear, it looks like lard. It's like a soft lard. Clear, white, clean-looking grease. So I recommend doing that with it. Um, you can basically, again, it, it, it's a fat, so you can do anything with it. Mushrooms. Oh, mushrooms. So I do a thing where usually I don't use my grease for this because I make my grease because bacon goes back into it at the end. So I take some bacon, and you saute it down until it's, you know, it's got a good grease layer to work with. And then you take the bacon out because of what's coming next. And then into that grease, you chop up shallots, and you, sh you saute your shallots, maybe a little bit of garlic in there as well. And you saute that down until it's clear and soft. And then you take a big handful of sliced mushrooms. Shiitakes are the best. You throw that in there. You add about an ounce of bourbon, and you set it on fire after the mushrooms are mostly cooked. And you, you cook down that bourbon to a bourbon reduction. And then you take some greens. I use kale for this. I use arugula for this. I use lamb's quarters for this. I use Swiss chard for this. If you use something like Swiss chard, cut the ribs out and chop that up into bite-sized pieces and put it in with your mushrooms because it's a little tougher to let it cook down more. Wilt your greens, throw the bacon back in and toss it. Awesome. If you're not, if you want to make that, you can make that without throwing the bacon bits in. You can just use your bacon grease. Um, it has a really high, bacon does, has a high smoke, bacon fat has a high smoke point. So you can get hotter cooking. So if you want to do things, because I use, I left something out, I use butter with that too. So you use the bacon grease to start, then you add butter, like four tablespoons. So that when you're cooking, you, you brown the butter a little bit. Well, you can come to higher temperatures without scorching the butter by mixing bacon grease with it. So anything that you would want to cook with the uh, flavor of butter, especially if you want to brown it a little bit, but you don't want to over-scorch it, over-smoke it, you know, mix it half butter, half bacon grease, and that will increase the overall temperature that butter cooks at. I'll be remiss if I didn't mention ghee here or strain-clarified butter. You can look up how to make that on the Internet. I'm going to go over it today, but if you do that and remove the solids from butter, it also has a very high smoke point. And ghee and bacon grease together... Oh, man, let me tell you. Anyway, just basically anything you do with any fat, you can do with bacon grease. And you should be saving it, and you should be using it, especially if you got a high-quality uncured bacon, or organic or pastured pork bacon. I mean, that's a high-quality fat that you should not be letting go of easily uh, when you think about what we pay for good-quality oils and fats. Next up, uh, question from Andrew. Andrew says, I was curious about the official adoption process. Since you mentioned at the beginning of episode 2223, I was wondering if I could ask you some questions about the process. Specifically, where do or should I start? What things should I be aware and cautious of? What costs are associated with the process? A little history. My daughter of 13 has never had contact with her donor. I'm sure he doesn't even know she exists. He's not listed on the birth certificate and, is a drug, uh, and has a drug and criminal record a mile long. I have not had a discussion with her about this whole me not being her real dad thing yet, but realize I needed, despite my own irrational fear, which admittedly is 100% of the reason I haven't. She's my daughter in every respect and acts like me so much it's scary. I'm a ranting man. I'm ranting man, so sorry. Anything you can share to help me would be amazing. Thanks so much. Also, congrats to you and your family, Andrew. Okay, Andrew, I, I don't know everything about this because my son did it. I was just here. Uh, my memory on the cost was around $6,000. It's not inexpensive. Um, but where do you start is you find a lawyer that specializes in adoption and family law. And I would recommend that you talk to more than one lawyer and that you look up. Apparently, there is a review page, a review site for lawyers. I don't know what it is off the top of my head, but 
Uh, my son mentioned that he has a review, speaking of this attorney, he has a review page uh, as though I'm going to use it. Uh, what happened with him, he did a good job in the end, but he went dark on them for a while. He took all their money and payments, and he was really responsive right up until they made the last one. They had done all the stuff they were supposed to do, and they had to harass him to get a court date, which was probably him getting his office ass and just getting one set up. Because once he has your money, he's on the next person's money. So I, I would look for someone that has a good uh, relationship with their past customers in any walk of life. But it's a family law attorney that you're looking for. What should you be aware of or cautious of? Again, since I didn't directly go through it, I think uh, a shitty lawyer would be one of the big things. And I'm a big believer in I will pay you the last of your money when you do the last of your work. You know, like I have no problem with paying a lawyer a portion of what they're supposed to receive as a as a matter of good faith. Uh, but until the job is done, you haven't earned your money yet. So, you know, that's one thing I'd be cautious of. Understanding how the process will work, I think, is something to be think, thinking about because you are going to not just file some paperwork and get this done. What happens is they assign a caseworker, like a social worker, to you. They interview you. They interview the children, assuming that they're old enough to be interviewed and understand the process. So you cannot do this without her knowledge is one of the things. Um, they'll, of course, talk to your wife, your spouse about you. In our instance, I don't know if there were others asked, but I and my daughter-in-law's parents were asked to write letters of recommendation. So I know you're going to need at least two of those, and probably your, your, your parents and the parents of your wife would be an obvious place to go, should they still be around anyway. I think there were more people that had to do that. So other people will get involved. Though I was never interviewed or questioned, I was simply, it was requested that I provide a letter. And it was pretty much that simple. They did have several different interviews. So be aware of that. And again, I believe the cost here was about $6,000. Uh, now, a little bit of like friendly advice, like parent-to-parent -parent type advice. Um, if you are trying to build up to having this conversation, it, it sounds like your wife is involved with this with you, and your wife is her birth mother. This is something you have to do as a team. You have to talk about together, and you need to talk about it with your wife first. Like, and you need to be really like, I don't know, you need to be honest, like, I'm not sure about this, I kind of feel like we should do this, and here's what I want to do, and why. Um, the good news is that you likely have no concerns of this parent ever being a threat to your relationship with this girl. Uh, your biggest threat would be in a divorce, it may be claimed that you are not, you know, you, you have no parental rights. Uh, it doesn't sound like you're in that situation either, and you're looking at six years. The whole process took over a year. Now, I don't know that it should, but it's, it was certainly something that like six months into it, it wasn't a lawyer dragging his feet. It was the process. So you're also looking at like if it takes a year, you know, then you, from a standpoint of access and rights, it's four years uh, that you're you're doing this for. But I think there's a huge... There's a huge advantage in this for the relationship with her because it tells her, I view you as my own and I want to make it official. Now, I want to explain something else. There may be, a, it may end instead with a, like a triumphant roar, kind of a wah wah, like it doesn't really matter. Here's what happened with my son. So we were all set to go into the courtroom and 
the judge had a pretty hot custody hearing going on on the docket prior to us. It was evident that it was going to go a while. Basically, Matt, Matt passed with flying colors. There was not a concern raised by anybody involved in the process about this. And the judge finally like stopped the people, called his attorney up, signed a piece of paper, and handed it back to him. And then they went down and did some other paperwork that took about 10 minutes, so they walked out. So for all of that in the end, they showed up, signed some papers, and left, and it was done. So there may not be a ceremony. So if you want something like that, you may want to hook that up on your own in some way. Um, you know, so there's there's different ways I guess you could come up with doing that. But it would send a clear message that you are my daughter for life, and you may or may not feel you need that. With her not knowing for this long, you might. Um, I never did this with my son. Um, his father became deceased only a few years into my relationship with Dorothy due to not taking care of himself and, and drug problems and things like that. So there's no threat there. Uh, there's no real reason or concern for it. We talked to an attorney, and, and basically uh, our only concern was what happens if Dorothy dies. And Dorothy just we amended to Dorothy's will that the child would remain with me, and that was enough at his age. They said it didn't really feel like anything else was necessary. Um, some levels looking back at it, I kind of wish I had done it. So it really may be worth doing, not from just a legal protection standpoint, but just a message. Now, I think it sucks in our society that when everybody agrees this is a good thing, it's just complicated and hard to do. Because let me tell you what you're really doing. You are agreeing that if the marriage does go wrong, to be susceptible to something you're not right now, which is child support payments. <laughs> So since you're willing to, yeah, I mean, it, that was the thing. I couldn't believe how involved the process was for my son. It's like, well, he's been doing the job for four years. In fact, in my letter, I said this is to make official something that already is. So those are just some words of advice. But a family law attorney is where to start, and I'm sure it varies by state like all legal things. Next up, a little bonus question here. I didn't mention in the beginning, but uh, a few months ago, this is from Brian. He said, you were thinking about getting an 03 FFL collector's license for Cure Own Relic. Been thinking of getting one myself for a while. I don't really like being on the radar any more than I have to be, but I'm still considering it. Wondering if you'd gotten yours and if the benefits are worth it, Brian in Tennessee. Brian, I haven't. And one of the things that was appealing to me with the CNR license or Cure Own Relic license was that it was pretty inexpensive to do. Turns out a full FFL isn't that expensive anyway. Um, and it, it doesn't require anything really more other than filling out a different form and giving them a little bit more money. And if you're a full FFL, then you have a hell of a lot more to pick from. And what's happened with a lot of the CNR stuff out there is it's, it's dried up and gotten expensive. And it, it doesn't seem to me that there's a huge advantage to having a CNR FFL. And there's certainly no business in it because it's not for you to transfer guns for others. It's basically for you to act as your own FFL. So I am actually at this point considering getting a full FFL license. And I, I, you know, I always kind of figured you had to have a business to do that. Like a gunsmith has to have an FFL, by the way. For, for someone to mount a scope on your gun, <laughs> if they take possession of it to do it, they have to have an FFL. If, if, if you were, uh, go, if somebody, you go to somebody's house and they do it for you while you're there, I don't think you technically have to, but maybe, I don't know. But if you're going to run a business as a gunsmith, you have to have an FFL, even if you're not selling guns, which is why most of them do sell guns, uh, or at least do transfers for people. 
Um, or you have to have a gun dealership to have an FFL. turns out anybody can get one. And most FFL holders actually do not have a business in the firearms industry. They have it for other reasons. A lot of them do transfers for people that buy stuff on gunbroker.com and stuff like that. And, you know, if we're doing 15 minutes of paperwork, you can make 15, 20 bucks. It's not bad money. So, I mean, that's, that's a, another option, you know, out there. But even if you were just acting as your own FFL then with a full license, that opens you up to being able to do anything you want. And, and, and it, it probably insulates you somewhat from, you know, if they go further with licensing requirements and stuff like that, which is something I, I'd said that was part of why I would do this. Well, you, you can't say the guy, you know, isn't safe with a gun when he already has a federal firearms license, that, that type of thing. So uh, it does open you to audits, and there's certain ways that any guns that are there must be stored and stuff like that. I don't know if I really want to do it either. And it, it, it's more to do with the, the rigmarole requirements than it is so much with being on the radar. I, I think we need to just put that on the shelf and forget about it. We are all on the radar. Every single one of us is already on every radar screen that there is, so I don't think it's worth worrying about. Matthew from Georgia, actually Gooseneck, Georgia, says, Hey, Jack, I'm not experienced with surf fishing. We're more crappie, brim, and catfish people. Can you tell me what I need as far as tackle-wise for surf fishing, please? What type, uh, size of weights and hooks? Do you use a simple Carolina rig? Uh, this is interesting because I'm getting really excited because in, uh, in less than a month, 13, 14, 15 days, I'm going to get my ass on a big old jet plane and fly out to one of my favorite places in the world, Sanibel Island, for 10 days. You can bet all 10 of those days we'll see some fishing on the surf and a couple in a boat. Uh, so, yeah, I'm, I'm thinking about this myself right now. In general, uh, I see a lot of people doing surf fishing with big old giant rods, and if you're fishing for sharks or something like that, that's fine. But in general, a good medium to medium light, even action rod, will work really well for you. When I travel, I primarily use a Browning Safari rod. It is a five, four, four piece rod, and that makes it fit in a little tube fits in my suitcase, and I just carry the reel separate from it, and that way I can fit everything in. And pretty much when I travel, I have everything that you would need for basic surf fishing. I use those little tackle box inserts, fits in my suitcase with a cast net, by the way. I take up some space. I don't need that many clothes, you know. Um, and uh, the way I generally rig up is I take a large snap swivel and I tie that with a palmer knot. And I use snelled hooks or I snell my own hook if I'm trying to use a hook that I can't get as a pre-snelled hook. Or I use a wire leader when I'm fishing for things that are toothy, like small sharks and, and some mackerel and whatnot. And that snell or that wire leader clips to that snap swivel. And then I get a really tiny snap swivel. And that snap swivel allows me to attach a casting weight, the ones that look like little sandbags, without having to like thread it through the line directly. And then... Water Gremlin now makes these pretty cool like snap-on weights. And the reason I like to do this is usually surfacing I'm fishing with a weight. But there are times when I prefer not to have a weight. When the tide's really slack, when you can sight fish, when you you know, when you don't this is my rule in general. Use the minimum amount of weight necessary for the fish type you're doing. So if you need to be on the bottom, you need a weight heavy enough to pull to the bottom. If you don't want it doing a lot of moving, you need one heavy enough to kind of anchor it depending on the current and flow. So generally speaking, all I have in my most basic bare bones 
kit for surf fishing is snap swivels uh, and an assortment of different size weights and an assortment of snelled hooks and steel leaders. That's it. That's that's all. Some other things and things I'll be taking this year with me is, is our Amazon item of the day today. We'll just kind of combine that with this is uh, the bubble box. So that fits in your suitcase nice and easy. A couple D batteries run it for like friggin' 40 hours. And what that lets me do, and if you're, you have your car, you would just bring a, a bucket or something like that. But what I'll usually do is buy a little cheap styrofoam cooler bucket once we hit the island and we, we supply up. Because they're four or five bucks, you just leave it behind. And uh, <clears throat> I'll actually dig a hole in the sand and set it down in the sand. It helps keep it cool. And I put my little bubble box in there and it keeps you know live bait alive. I usually bring a cast net with me. And a lot of times you can get bait and surf. If not, you can get it somewhere else, and you got a way to keep it alive with that bubble box. Now, a lot of people just say, well, just use a, you know, like a minnow bucket to throw in the water. That works, but, you know, tides go in and out, and it's, you know, you're dragging it around and stuff like that. So if you're using live bait, that's what I like to do. My primary bait is cut bait, and I really like to use shrimp to start out. Generally speaking, especially Georgia coast, you're probably going to have a lot of uh, Gulf kingfish around, a.k.a. whiting. Uh, they're a decent eating fish, but there's usually a lot of them, and some of them are pretty small. And if you catch those, you know, keep a few, uh, throw them on ice right away, because they kind of get really soft if you don't. And cut little fillets off and cut those into chunks and use those as bait. That stays on better than shrimp, and everything will eat a dead shrimp will eat that piece of whiting. Another bait that I use a lot of are sand fleas, and you can uh, you can kind of Google how to find them, but usually right as the water is going out, it'll create kind of a ledge, and usually right in that ledge, if you stick your hands deep in there and pull out big hunks of sand mud, you'll find these little sand fleas running around. Those are dynamite bait for pompano and uh, permit, which are great fish as well. Uh, I'll leave it there because I have a whole episode on surf fishing. I talk about the gear, the tactics, everything, and I have a link in today's show notes for it to you, Matthew, so you can go listen to a whole hour and 15 minutes on a subject's real near and dear to me. On that note, if you like the show and the work that we do here, you can help support us by doing your online shopping at T-SPAS. Uh, as I said, our item of the day for review and all of the items that are reviewed are categorized and available at tspaz.com, so you can go through and look at them all and find them all. Uh, but it's the bubble box. It's a little plastic aerator, 2D batteries, and it will run for almost 40 hours. And I've tested this. Mine ran for 47 hours and somewhere between 47 and 48 hours it died, and I don't really know where. But over 47 hours on, on some D batteries, and it's, it's a little air stone, plugs in, and, I mean, everybody I know that's ever used these things loves them. Uh, they're not expensive at all. I mean, for what you're getting, they're, uh, they're dirt cheap as far as I'm concerned. Like eight bucks cheap. That's $7.96. Um, and for the fishermen, I think they're fantastic because they keep bait alive. We use them. We do a lot of stocking of our own aquaponic systems. And what, what I'll do, now you see, it's a little easier for me, right? I'll take a little, uh, fountain pump, like a little low, you know, 200 gallon per hour fountain pump. And put a little bit of PVC on it, create a spray bar, and I'll take a 100-gallon Rubbermaid cooler uh, or Igloo cooler stick in the back of my truck, and I'll plug it into my Stephen Harris battery bank into the inverter. So I'm driving down the road with a waterfall in there, and that works great now. But you honestly can transport, and I have just because, well, you know, I'll go to a little local pond or something like that, and I'm only going to be driving 10, 15 minutes home. And I've had, you know, 20, 50 bluegill in a 5-gallon bucket with this thing running. 
and no problem getting them home at all. And I've tried it without one, and I've had some pretty bad results at times. Uh, a lot of times what I'll do in the field is I basically make my own minnow bucket. I take a five-gallon bucket and drill a bunch of holes in it. And uh, if you're at a pond where at least it's flat enough that you can like fill it like halfway with water and it won't float away on you, sometimes you put a rock in it. And then, you know, as long as there's a deep enough spot at the ledge of the pond, because you can't let it float sideways like a typical minnow bucket, and I keep my fish in there. That way there's always a fresh flow of water through, basically they're still in the same pond. But even with those, I have another bucket that it sits inside like a minnow bucket, and I have a little hole in the lid, and I attach my bubble box for my rides home. When we're fishing further away where we use the cooler and the overflow thing, um, you know, we're not going to have that at the car. So there's times when we've caught like a bunch And, you know, you get up to like 50 in a bucket and they're pretty crowded. And we take them up to the truck and that has that waterfall going and we go back. We'll still go three, four hours of fish collection with just the bubble box. But it does other things. If you have aquariums, you should have one of these. If your power goes out, 2D batteries and you got 40 hours of bubbles in your aquarium so your expensive fish don't die. Aquaponics. Like this is not something you're going to run an aquaponics system on. But the fact that you can just take a long piece of tubing and have an air column of bubbles coming through your IBC during your power outage for, you know, I think I did the math on it. And if you were to, to, to buy a 12-pack of D-cell batteries, uh, you can run for five days. Five freaking days on a 12-pack of D-cell batteries. If you use little D-cell batteries, I recommend, uh, adapters I recommend, you can run them with your rechargeable AA's. Uh, it's just an extremely efficient device, and what else would it do for you? Well, how about making compost tea? You know, you make compost tea, you want to agitate it, throw one of these things in there. You, what about, and I would get a dedicated one for this if I was going to do it, at least a dedicated tube and an airstone. But what about those of you that are high-gravity beard and mead makers? In the first 24, 48 hours, you know, even just eight hours of doing this in your must or your work, Man, that's when you can start pushing that 16, 20% stuff. So it's a really versatile thing for eight bucks. Uh, check it out today. It's made by a company called Marine Metal, and it's called the Bubble Box. And it is totally worth the eight bucks. And remember, if it's at T-Spaz, I own it, I use it, or I wouldn't tell you to spend your money on it. The other way you can help support the show always, become a member of the MSB. Want to learn more about that? All I'll say today is go to the survivalpodcast.com, click on members, learn more. It's funny that we got a fishing question today that lined up with the item of the day and then the song we're going to get. And it, it, I'll tell you, it wasn't planned at all. I, I don't generally plan things this way, but it amazes me with synchronicity how often it works out. The only thing I did was I moved uh, this question from Matthew to the end. It was like going to be the third from the last. I moved it to the last. Uh, in the lineup because it all kind of flowed together. The song today is by Trace Atkins, and it's called Just Fishing. And, and Trace actually wrote, he's five daughters, and he is a doting, dedicated daddy. And uh, he wrote this with his kids in mind. And, and the point of this song is the little kid thinks they're just fishing, but what they're doing is they're spending daddy and daughter time together, which is so important. I think those of you with daughters... If you want your daughter to have a healthy relationship with men when, when she grows up, and I know a lot of men you know, joke and say, like, my daughter will date when she's 35 or something like that. Dude, even if you mean it, it, it doesn't work that way. Little girls turn into little young ladies really quick, and they always like boys. Or they like somebody anyway. Most of them like boys. Um, and when that happens, there's nothing in the world you can do to stop it. 
All you can do is hope that you raise that little girl with the mentality of, I want a man that treats me right. And the best way to, to, to I wouldn't say ensure, because it doesn't always happen, but to make it more likely that she'll choose men that treat her right as she becomes a woman is for her to spend a lot of time around men that treat her the way a lady should be treated. And it don't matter what you're doing. It don't matter if you, you, you play princess with her. I know some of you guys do that, and God God bless you for it. Um, or or what have you, or fishing, or taking her out to have a meal, or whatever, but spend the time together. And what this makes me think of is uh, a few years ago, I, I played this song on the air, and it was in response to a question. It was a dad that said he was going to take his little girl fishing, wanted to make sure she had a good time and a good experience. And I said, just, just go. She doesn't know what good and bad is. She doesn't know if you suck. She doesn't know if you know what you do. But she'll, she will know that you're together and that you're doing stuff together. So that's the really a great song. And Trace Adkins, one of my favorite artists, he's got a voice like, what else would he be other than a country singer? I mean, just maybe a voiceover guy, and I think he does some of that work anyway. Just an incredible voice, really good dude. And I think there's a, there's a big message in this song beyond fishing. It doesn't matter what the activity is. It matters that you're spending time with the kids. If you do that, you grow them into fine young adults. I think one of the biggest problems that, that our young people have today, even the ones that don't come from broken homes, they don't spend enough time with their fathers. I think some of them don't spend enough time with mothers either, but really they don't spend enough time with fathers. Young girls spending time with fathers learn what to expect of and what to require of the men in their life if, they're, if their fathers are upstanding men. Young boys learn how to be men by modeling the behavior of men. So I don't care what sex you got, take them fishing, spend time with them. With that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. I'm her there holding that pink rod and reel. She's doing almost everything but sitting still. Talking about her ballet shoes and training wheels And her kittens And she thinks we're just fishing I say daddy loves you baby one more time She says I know, I think I've got a bite All this laughing, crying, smiling, dying here inside's what I call living. And she thinks we're just fishing on the riverside, throwing back what we could fry, drowning worms and killing time. Nothing too ambitious. She ain't even thinking about what's really going on right now, but I guarantee this memory. And she thinks we're just fishing She's already pretty like her mama is Gonna drive the boys all crazy, give her daddy fits And I better do this every chance I get Cause time is ticking It is Thanks, we're just fishing on the riverside Throwing back what we could fry Drowning worms and killing time Nothing too ambitious She ain't even thinking about What's really going on right
bigger And she thinks we're just fishing She ain't even thinking about What's really going on right now But I guarantee this memory's a big one And she thinks we're just fishing Yeah.